Whenever you preach, there is always the danger that people hearing it will misunderstand your message and draw from it the wrong practical conclusions. And that is certainly the case with this morning's message. So I want to begin with an absolutely unmistakable, clear declaration as to what I believe and what Mid-Valley Bible Church believes. And hopefully you believe as well. We believe that God heals today in response to Christians praying. We believe that people who are afflicted and miserable, either physically, emotionally, or spiritually, can find deliverance from God. When he sovereignly chooses to break through and does the seemingly impossible. Now when I say that, I'm not talking about the nonsense of the many tele-evangelists and faith healers of our day, who if you send them seed money, promise a return on your gift, and then they'll tell you that they'll send you their prayer cloths, their special anointing oil, or their water that's supposedly from the Jordan River in Israel, that's guaranteed to heal you from everything from cataracts to cancer. Friend, that's not what I'm talking about. We believe unapologetically in miracles, healing miracles, but not their abuse. What's more, I believe that you and I should never stop praying for God to work in our lives or in the lives of our loved ones until such time as God clearly says, no, or we're dead. Now the reason for saying this is because someone is inevitably going to include what, from what I talk about in 2 Corinthians that you and I should simply accept the the cross that God has for us to bear in life, no matter what that cross may be. And I want to suggest that nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing I say this morning about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 should be interpreted as suggesting that you and I should slack off or be less diligent in our appeals before God to intervene and bring about healing. Now, I hope that is clear. Because while you and I do believe in healing miracles, we're also realistic about life. And sometimes, sometimes God allows people to go through countless struggles and difficulties. And sometimes we pray And we pray fervently. And we ask God to intervene. And sometimes God says no. We don't know why, but that is simply the reality. And so the question that I want to ask and answer this morning from this passage of Scripture is simply this. What are you and I supposed to do when God says no? How can you and I glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in our weakness, our sickness, our setbacks, when in spite of our fervent prayers for their removal, they remain? And that is the issue that this passage is talking about. You know, the reality is simply this. Every person in this auditorium this morning has faced, is facing, or will face some unique and demanding occasion, some weakness, some challenge, some burden, some sickness 
It may be a fractured and dysfunctional relationship that just puts pressure on you to the point where you're wondering whether you can continue to live faithfully for the glory of God. And the question, as you fervently pray for God to work, is how am I going to respond when God says no? Or perhaps more precisely, he says, wait. Let me also say that one of the things that we need to remember is that there is a major problem when we begin comparing our difficulties, our sickness, our disabilities, our loss of a job, or to use the language of, that Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12, our thorn in the flesh with other people's difficulties. And so what I want to suggest this morning is what you and I need to do is simply this. All of us, this is the big idea of the morning, okay? We wrote it out in your outline so no one will miss the point. What God wants you and I to do is to pray fervently and frequently that God would remove our difficulties, our thorns in the flesh, but if he does not, if God chooses not to deliver us from that, we determine by God's grace to gladly boast in our weakness so that the power and glory of Christ might be displayed in and through us. Now, one of the things that I was taught to do in seminary is never start with an apology. But I want to do that. I want to ask for your indulgence and patience because there are probably going to be as many questions that are raised about this passage as that I answer. And so I want to apologize in advance for skipping over much of what is said here. I only have a limited time. And what I want to do is I want to address briefly in verses 1 through 6 what Paul says regarding visiting a place called paradise. And then I want to spend the majority of our time in verses 7 through 10. Now just so you and I can understand the context of where we are in the letter that Paul wrote to the church there in Corinth. Paul is writing to Christians who had allowed false teachers to seize authority in the church during Paul's absence. They were spiritual predators. They were enemies of Paul. They were masquerading as apostles of Christ. And upon taking control of that church, they were saying things like, well, you know, I was talking to the Lord last night, and he told me such and such a thing. Or, you know, the Holy Spirit gave me this special interpretation of Scripture. And these guys were saying these things in an effort to elevate themselves up here and to put Paul down here. And so what you find Paul doing in chapters 10, 11, and 12 is he sort of sets out his resume and he establishes the truth that, you know, he was no second-rate apostle. He wasn't part of the JV team. He played varsity. He wasn't part of the practice squad. He was right out there on the field. And what he does is he, he fights fire with fire. 
And what's interesting is he does so somewhat reluctantly because they had forced his hand. And so when you come to chapter 12, Paul does something that's kind of unique. And then he talks, his, he talks about an event that happened in his life in the third person. You see, he's really talking about himself, but he says, you know, I, I, I know a man who this happened to, and, and this happened to this, this friend of mine. He's really talking about himself. You know why? Because Paul was a very humble person. And anything that smacked of self-promotion or pride on his part, he wanted to avoid at all cost. And he mentions an event in his life that happened 14 years earlier. An, an out-of-body experience that Paul had. And, and what exactly that was, well, candid, we, we, we can't say for certain. In fact, Paul himself says, I can't fully explain it. As you read these first seven verses carefully, you find that Paul says that the experience that I went through was so overwhelmingly intense, so utterly shrouded in mystery that, you know, I don't even know whether I was in the body or out of the body. In fact, at the end of verses 3 and then in rather verse 2 and, and verse 3, he says, you know, regarding this event, he says, really, only God knows. I, I find it interesting that Paul doesn't flippantly and casually speak about this event. In fact, it took him 14 years to talk about it. And because that's the case, I, I'm going to be real candid with you. I am a little more than suspicious when people today talk about going to heaven or say they were involved in a conversation with angels and the apostles and maybe even Jesus himself, and they talk about having gone to heaven and now they're back here on earth, sort of the same way I might talk about going to Chick-fil-A for a chicken sandwich, waffle fries, and a cookies and cream shake. And some people talk about heaven that way and talking with Jesus and meeting the apostles and talking to the angels. And it's sort of like, really? Uh, you went to heaven? You talked to Jesus? You, you talked to the apostles? And again, I want to be kind when I say this. There is only one infallible rule by which you and I can test the validity of these claims when people say they went to heaven, and that is through the Bible. And I am concerned that when people say they went to heaven and they return with a report about something that they saw there or heard there that is explicitly contrary to what the Bible teaches, when that happens, friend, you and I are justified in concluding that they are, they are either deliberately lying or they're naive victims of a religious fraud. And we want to speak the truth. Now, the next question that you have to ask when Paul talks about this event is where and what is paradise? And how does it relate to his description of the third heaven? Well, that word paradise is found in only two other places in Scripture. 
It's found in Luke 23 where Jesus promises to the thief on the cross that today he would be with him in paradise. And it's also found in Revelation 2.7 where he says to the church at Ephesus that I will give to those who overcome the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, I believe that the third heaven is the very abode of God. The first heaven would be the atmosphere that is our home. The second heaven would be outer space, the stellar heavens that are out there. And the third heaven is where God is. Please understand that this is not talking about three degrees of glory. I want you to notice that Paul says in verse 2 that he was caught up to the third heaven. And then in verse 4 he says he was caught up to paradise. Some of your translations translate this, that Paul was taken as far as the third heaven and then into paradise. In fact, that's how the prepositions are in the original. And the implication is that the third heaven points to the height of Paul's translation and the paradise refers to the depth of it. In other words, what I'd like to suggest is that what Paul is saying here is that paradise is within the third heaven. It's where the now disembodied believers are in the very presence of Jesus Christ himself. And Paul says, what I saw there was so unbelievable, so beyond description, so utterly amazing that I was forbidden from sharing any information about that. Now that raises a, a good question. It's one that has to be asked and answered. And that is, if Paul was forbidden from sharing information about this visit to paradise, why was he taken there in the first place? What was the purpose of this remarkable journey if he couldn't tell other people about it? Well, evidently, it was an experience given to Paul by God for his own personal benefit. It was given to strengthen Paul so that he would persevere to the end as he faced all kinds of opposition and persecution. And because that's the case, I don't believe that what happened to Paul is the norm. In other words, the primary reason Paul refrains from reciting further revelations and visitations isn't because they didn't exist, but because they were uncommon in his life. Furthermore, I want you to look at verse 6. This is a fascinating verse. He's talking about this visit, and he says, even if I should choose to boast, even if I was starting to brag about this, I would be speaking the truth. But he says, I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Do you see what he's saying here? This is a great verse. What he's saying here is, I want your opinion of me to be formulated. Not based upon this mystical experience that was mine. I want your opinion of me to be based on my conduct and my character. In other words, I'm not going to tell you some 
off-the-wall, unverifiable, unprovable story in an attempt to establish my credibility. He says, I'm going to let my life do the talking. Now, Paul never would have denied the reality of his supernatural experience. But listen, he didn't expect people to embrace him because of it. And that is very, very important. Paul is saying, look at my life. Look at the choices I make. Look at the suffering I endured. Look at the words that I speak. Let the consistency of my character, not this charismatic experience that I received from the Spirit, be the grounds of your judgment on me. And I want to say this as lovingly as I can. This is a far cry from what is happening today among some of our charismatic brothers and sisters. Some of them are forever claiming things that cannot be proved, and they're asking us to listen to them, to believe them, and follow them. And then when you look at their lives, they're an absolute fraud. Paul is is saying here, you judge my life by what I say, how I say it, and the way that I live. Now, with all of that having happened to the Apostle Paul, you would have thought that Paul wouldn't have had a problem with sin because of that. I mean, think about this. He was transported by some miraculous event to paradise. And because of that, Paul could have concluded, and hey, confession's good for the soul and poor for the reputation. I would have done this. Paul could have concluded and said, you know, I must be special. I mean, nobody else has gone to the third heaven. There's something unique about me. There's something that's captured the attention of God and warranted his favor upon me. And the result of this vision and revelation wasn't humility, but hubris. It wasn't gratitude, it was presumption. It wasn't holiness, it was arrogance. And Paul says, because I went through that experience to prevent me from falling into pride, God gave to me a thorn in the flesh. I love the description that one commentary gave of this. He said that it was a bridle that held him back from haughtiness. Isn't that good? It was a bridle that held him back from haughtiness. And you read in verse 7 that the purpose of that thorn in the flesh was to keep him from being conceited. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that happened that wasn't under the control and providence of God. You see, the source of this thorn in the flesh was God himself. Look at verse 7. He says, Because of these surpassing great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Now, I don't want to get too technical here. 
and I'm not trying to impress anybody, believe me, but this is what is known as a divine passive. Now, when you call your kids later this afternoon, okay, you can say, you know, I learned what a divine passive was. And as they're salivating at the mouth, you can tell them all these wonderful things about what a divine passive is. Well, friend, it's a technical term in Greek where the agent behind the event is not identified. But in this case, God is the unidentified cause or hidden agent that caused these events. In other words, this thorn in the flesh that was given to Paul came from God himself. And its purpose was to prevent him from being puffed up in pride, being conceited. Fact of the matter is Satan would have loved nothing more than for Paul to feel elated and arrogant and prideful as a result of this experience. So obviously Satan was not behind this event. God was. And you know, as you study the scriptures, you find over and over again that sometimes evil people are doing things. But behind those evil events and those evil people is a sovereign God. Remember the story of the book of Job? God was behind that, even though Satan was the one who was afflicting Job. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that a man in the church was put under church discipline for some scandalous sinful behavior and it says he was handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Satan was the one who was doing the bidding, the disciplining. But God was the one who released him into that arena. Satan and God are at odds one with the other. God uses Satan to accomplish his will and plan for our lives. And in this case, God's divine design for Paul was to keep him from sinful pride. Notice he says in verse 7 that it was to torment me. The old King James says buffet me. Some translations say harass me. The verb means to beat or strike a blow with a fist. It was the word used of the soldiers before Christ's crucifixion who struck him with their fists. It's in the present tense. And Paul says after this event, this miraculous event, I endured continuous, painful, intense torment. To the point, Paul says, where three times over I prayed that I would be delivered. He says that in verse 8. But God said no. God said no, I'm not going to deliver you from that, Paul. Now the question that everyone asks, and rightly so, is what was the thorn in the flesh? Well, some have said that it was a reference to all of the enemies of the gospel who opposed and persecuted Paul during his evangelistic and missionary efforts, those who cast him into prison, those who beat him, those who led him away towards death. Some have said that this 
is a reference to the Judaizers, and we've talked about them from the book of Galatians, who were obviously present and active there in Corinth, and who were challenging the Apostle Paul. Some have suggested that this was a speech impediment that he had. Some have said that it was epilepsy, malaria, gallstones, kidney stones, gout, deafness, dental infection, rheumatism, earaches, headaches, sciatica, arthritis, and leprosy. And just for the sake of completeness, how about we throw in a bum knee to boot? That was his thorn in the flesh. Probably, however, the most popular view is that the problem that Paul had was an issue with the eyes. Remember last week we talked about from the book of Galatians that Paul says that he probably had an eye issue. Now, I, I want to give you, and this is historic, write it down, July 21st, 2019, Mid-Valley Bible Church, 1140. I'm going to give you the definitive answer as to what this was this, this ranks right up there with identifying the author of the book of Hebrews. All right, here's the answer to what that thorn in the flesh was. Drum roll, please. We don't know. And you know, I for one am grateful for that. Because had Paul been more specific as to the nature of his problem, you and I could have rightly concluded, well, his solution doesn't apply to me because my situation is far different than his. My situation is unique. What could I possibly learn from the Apostle Paul in this matter? But I think in leaving the door open concerning the nature of this thorn, Every one of us is able to identify with Paul's struggle. And we can learn and grow from the way in which Paul yielded to the sovereignty and the sufficiency of God's divine grace. And so that takes us back to the original question. How do we respond when God says no? Whether it's a physical problem you might have this morning and you're pleading, you're pleading, God, give me healing. Maybe it's a, a relational problem that you're having with someone. Maybe it's a, it's, it's, it's a spiritual issue, a, a battle that you're going on. How do we respond when God says no? You know what Paul tells us here? We don't quit. We don't throw in the towel. We keep on praying. And we realize that God is going to see us through as we depend upon him and as we rely upon him. And it's so trite to say it, but it needs to be said. We realize that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Paul says, God's divine power to perform does so at its best when we realize our utter inability. And he says that God's supply is never-ending. It's a self 
replenishing river of spiritual resources that equip and uphold us and sustain us in the midst of every situation that comes our way. Now, I want to suggest five things in closing. Number one, learn to embrace divine providence. Learn to embrace divine providence. Look at verse 9. He says, as he pled with the Lord three times over to take this thorn in the flesh from me, he says, God responded and said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Think about that when God declined his request three times over. His response wasn't one of passive resignation to the rottenness of his life. You know what it was? It was a joyful delight that God was going to use him as an instrument for the manifestation of Christ's resurrection and power in his life. And he says, in my weakness, (laughs) in this hard situation... I'm going to see God at work. Second lesson is this. Although Paul willingly embraced his thorn, it was only after he had passionately prayed that it be removed. Here's the lesson. There's nothing unscriptural, nothing unspiritual about praying for deliverance. And I know some of you are praying, and you're praying fervently. you got health issues. you got financial issues. You've got relational issues. And I'm not suggesting that those things are inherently good. They're not. So what do we do? We keep on praying. We keep on pleading. We, 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 we plead with God to intervene. Thirdly, when Paul says, I will gladly accept my weaknesses, verse 9, and delight, delight in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That does not mean, and listen carefully, that does not mean that we are to go out and seek suffering. You know why some people have a thorn in the flesh? Because they're a pain in the neck. And they've done some foolish things. They say, oh, oh, my relationship with other people, it's so bad at work. Oh, those people, they're a thorn in the flesh to me. Well, maybe you're in a pain in the neck to them. Maybe you've got some health issues and, you know, I'm as guilty as the next person. We, we didn't take care of ourselves. We're reaping what we sow. Paul is not encouraging a morbid, self-imposed anguish or asceticism. His affliction was God-given, and it was for Christ's sake. Fourthly, Paul learned that spiritual purity was more important to God than his immediate physical pleasure. Friend, far greater to God than our own comfort is our holiness. 
And fifth and finally, the ultimate aim of God orchestrating our weaknesses. Whether it was a messenger of Satan, an annoying circumstance, or a long-held dream that failed, or a physical problem, the ultimate aim of that difficulty, that hardship in your life, is to glorify the sufficiency of God's grace and His power in your life and mine. The question is, am I going to allow God to work under those circumstances? Am I going to give Him thanks? Am I going to depend upon Him? Am I going to rely upon Him? I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward at this time. We're going to close our service in a moment by singing a hymn that was written by a godly woman named Annie Johnson Flint. She lived and wrote this hymn more than a hundred years ago, and her life was marked by a series of tragedy. She was born on Christmas Day, 1866, a year after the Civil War was over, in Vineland, New Jersey. It's right where my wife used to live. When she was three years old, her mother died giving birth to her baby sister. And then later, her dad, who had a terminal illness, also died. And he had made arrangements that the children would be cared for by the Flint family. At the age of eight, she trusted Christ as her Savior. And after high school, she was offered a a, a training position as a teacher. And in her second year of teaching, second year, just a teenager, she was hit with arthritis that worsened and made it so that she, she couldn't walk, she couldn't continue on being a teacher. And for the rest of her life, she was confined to a wheelchair. Shortly after that, her, her adopted parents died, and she began to write poetry that was later put to music. She never, ever, ever got out of that wheelchair. And what's amazing to me as I read about this dear, dear saint is that her faith in God never faltered. She never gave up. And she wrote the hymn that I want us to close with this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand. And as we sing this song, don't don't just sing it without letting the words filter through your mind. Because it is a profound, profound, profound lesson that we learn, need to learn. It really summarizes what I've talked about this morning. Let's sing together.
pray. Father, this morning we know that you are a healing God. We know that your power is without limit and that you desire to do good among us, your children. And so, Father, I want to ask that you would deliver those who are here this morning from some of the thorns in the flesh that they are enduring. Whether it's a physical illness, an emotional distress, a financial pressure, a relational strain, whatever it may be, Father, we don't know why you're allowing people to go through those heartaches. And we know that you've told in the case of some, no, others you've said, wait. And so, Father, during that time of us waiting upon you and depending upon you, we pray that our weakness would be a platform from which you can work. And we pray that you would sustain us by your grace and by your love. We ask now that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and communion of God's Spirit would be with us as we now go out into the world as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.